This morning, we are blessed and honored to have Ken Sandy here with us to open God's Word. If you missed the seminar yesterday, unfortunately, you did miss just a fantastic day, a fantastic day of great insight and wisdom, and also a great day of being challenged by God's Word, and I'm glad that you'll be able to get a taste of that here this morning. For those of you that aren't familiar with Ken, Ken um, started a ministry over 30 years ago after writing a book called The Peacemaker focused on biblical reconciliation and how the gospel redeems the brokenness in our, in our relationships. He spent the last 30 years um, working in doing mediation and conflict resolution from difficulties from marriages that had fallen apart to churches that had fallen apart to seminaries and Christian colleges that had fallen apart to lawsuits between believers to multi-million dollar settlements between Christians that were um, arguing and had sued one another. And so he spent the last 30 years working in mediating those conflicts and more recently he shifted his focus as opposed to mediation to how can we actually prevent those conflicts. That's what we focused on yesterday and uh, he is here with his his wife, Corlette, who's also wrote a book called The Young Peacemaker, highly recommended. Several of you in, this, in our church, I know, have used that book and have been blessed by that, and just so glad that they're out here with us. Came out from the state of Montana, coming out to the East Coast, and so welcome. Please open God's Word for us. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, good. Good morning. See a lot of familiar faces out there this morning. Um, Let's look at a passage, one of the passages I use all the time in peacemaking. It's sort of a Swiss army knife of uh, peacemaking, if you will. It's got just about everything you need. Colossians 3, 12-15. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the eternal, powerful life-changing power of your word, every word of which is true. And Lord, we pray that you would now send your Holy Spirit to quicken our minds, to open our hearts and our understanding that we might uh, gain benefit from this short passage that can be absolutely life-changing. Please, God, give us attention, give us clarity, and change and transform us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A while ago, I was in Africa visiting a tribe called the Karamajang. And this is a cattle-based culture where their entire livelihood is wrapped around their herds of cattle. And when I was there, I met a young man named Moses. And Moses was from a tribe called the Teso. It was a neighboring tribe. There was a lot of raids that went back and forth between these different tribes, um, when, when young men wanted to get a wife, they had to steal cattle to pay the bride price. So there were raids where many young men would go across the border into another tribe and, and steal cattle. Well, at one point, many years ago, there was a massive raid of Karamajung warriors who went into Tesso territory and stole, in one raid, over 100,000 cattle. They, they basically wiped out the economic base of the Tesso tribe. 
wiped it out. They were armed with machine guns that had been left uh, in open armories when Idi Amin was driven out of power. And there's 14-year-old boys with AK-47s. And they would come into villages on this raid and just machine gun uh, entire villages, the huts. And there was many, many people killed. Most of, of Moses' family was killed. His parents, his brothers and sisters, cousins, uncles, aunts. Many people were killed by the Karamajong in the raid. And as the Karamajong fled, they thought they could get back to their, their own uh, tribal land more quickly by going through this one area. But they didn't realize that all the water holes had dried up. A 100,000 cattle carcasses covered the landscape. So they not only wiped out the economy of the Tesso, they not only killed all the people, but they actually destroyed the cattle themselves. They, they just died. Vultures had a feast. Can you imagine how bitter you would be if someone did that to you? How angry, how filled with hatred, how much of a desire you would have to have revenge against those people. And that's what Moses wrestled with, as any one of us would have wrestled. Deep, deep hatred. And he was eventually adopted by some missionaries who, who shared the gospel with him. And Moses gave his life to Christ. He went through the local Christian school there. He ended up coming to the United States where he went to college, uh, went to veterinarian school, and also to seminary and gained several degrees. He could have stayed here and lived a very comfortable life. He had advanced degrees. He could have made a good living with his wife and his three children living here in the United States. But as Moses and his wife prayed about it, they had a very strong sense that God was calling them back to Africa, back to Uganda, to help their people. But as they prayed, and their, their own personal compass bearing was pointed back to the Tesso tribe, they kept feeling a nudge on the compass and was pointing over to the Karamajong. <laughs> Moses thought, what? How, how could I go to those people, serve those people after all they did to me? And he's wrestled through this with, with God, with the Holy Spirit, with the scriptures. He came under deep conviction in passages like, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Passages like Romans 12, where Paul says, if your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll pour burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And those passages spoke to Moses' heart. He went back, and when I met him, he was working in the Tesso tribe, taking care of their cattle and their camels and their goats and sharing the love of Christ. It's a beautiful example of what we see in the scriptures, a similar story of astonishing reconciliation, astonishing grace. We see in the book of Ephesians where Paul is talking about this phenomena where Jews and Gentiles were worshiping together. Now, we we don't really understand how radical that was. It was incredibly radical. At that time, there was such a chasm, such a canyon between the Jews and the Gentiles They not only did not eat together, they did not worship together. If a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, her family had a funeral service. And they wailed and they lamented for her as though she had died. Her family no longer spoke to her. They no longer treated her like she was even alive. 
That's how big this chasm was, the hatred, the enmity, the contempt between the Jews and the Gentiles. And suddenly now in Jerusalem and in Tarsus and Ephesus and Galatia and Corinth and all these cities around the Mediterranean where the gospel is going forth, Jews and Gentiles were coming together. They were worshiping. They were breaking bread. They were sitting under the teaching of the apostles. They were intermarrying, which everybody thought, what is going on? What's happening? They knew something supernatural was happening, and it got the attention of those communities. And when they inquired, when they were puzzled by this, this miraculous behavior, it was the perfect opportunity to talk to people about the reconciling power of Jesus Christ. And this is what caused the gospel to explode in those early years, was people saw such radically different behavior among those who confessed the name of Jesus Christ. They had been transformed in such a radical way, people could not fail but fail to notice. Now, why don't we see that today? Why don't we see that in our communities, that people would look at a church like Cornerstone or First Baptist or whatever churches you have in your community and just say, what is going on down there? Have you heard? Why isn't that happening? I think it's because many of us have fallen into this habit of living a two-door gospel. And what I mean by a two-door gospel is we treat the gospel itself like a message that has relevance at two key times in our lives. It's like a door that is giving us entry into a room. At one point, we're outside that door, outside the kingdom of God, outside of his salvation. But someone shares the gospel with us. The Holy Spirit opens our heart to understand and comprehend and see our need. We trust in Jesus Christ. We believe the message that he died and was risen for us. And we come into the family of God. We're now in the room. We're in his kingdom. We're saved. We're born again. But at that point, we make this mistake. And it's subtle, it's subconscious, it's not deliberate. But we basically take the gospel and treat it like a paper airplane ticket, one that we bought and we will use someday again. And we put it in our pocket and we walk through life, day-to-day life, with our kids and our family and our coworkers and all the struggles of life, not really thinking about the gospel and its relevance, not making it the defining element in our lives. And until we come to another important door, we come to the door at the other side of the room, death. And we're laying in the hospital, on the bed, our family's gathered around us. We want to comfort them. And we say, don't worry, I believe in the gospel. And yes, I'll probably be dead in a day or two, but that's okay, because I'll be with Jesus. And so at death and at conversion, the gospel is the defining element in our lives. But between those two doors, we often live as though it has no relevance at all. When we have a difficult relationship with a coworker, or an in-law or a friend or a neighbor or a spouse or a teenager, we, we operate in the flesh. We operate out of our emotions. We do what seems right to us. And then we wonder why the communities don't look at us and see anything different, anything that is appealing. And this is what Paul is getting at in this text for today, is he is calling us to live in a radically different way Every single day. Every single day. You see, through the gospel, God has not only given us eternal life. He has given us, he has made us new creatures. We are new. Radically changed. 
Later in Corinthians, Paul says that we, a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come. We are new creations with new purposes, with new powers that he calls us to enjoy and to employ every single day of our lives. The gospel enriches and empowers and transforms our relationships, or so it should if we are consciously seeking that transformation. We have to seek it. We have to participate. We have to pursue it. But it enriches our relationships by revealing two incredibly important things. Number one, what God has done for us through Christ. And secondly, who we are in Christ. We focus on what God has done for us through Christ, focusing on God. We call that being God-aware. But then also focusing on who we are now. What is our new identity? Self-awareness in Christ. And as those two things take place in our lives, we become other-aware. We look out at the world, the lost, hurting, unreconciled, broken world, and we engage them with the love and the power of Christ. What has God done for us through Christ? Well, Paul talks about it here. He says, the Lord, you know, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive others. He has forgiven us. And it wasn't just a a brush of the hand. It was an eternal plan to send his son into the world to live a perfectly righteous life, to accumulate a perfect record that he could give to us. And then he took all of our sins on his shoulders, was up on that cross, nailed there, suffering, dying for us, bearing the judgment that we deserved. And then he was resurrected back to life to validate his identity and the completion of his ministry. That's when God, when those words say he has forgiven us, all of that is loaded into that phrase. He did an enormous, incredible, world-changing work in forgiving us. But it's not just he has forgiven us. He has made us different people. He has given us a different identity. Paul starts his passage in Colossians with these words, and they're so easy to skip over. It's so easy just to not appreciate the significance. He says, put on then as God's Chosen ones, holy, dearly loved. If we really understood that, we would have a hard time thinking about anything else today. We'd be so taken up with the fact that God chose me. I'm holy. I'm I'm set aside like the vessels in the tabernacle for holy purposes. I am a dearly loved child of God. Whoa. That's, that's mind-blowing. But we tend to just go right by it. We need to stop and meditate and reflect on this, that we are chosen, holy, beloved. We need to meditate deeply on these things. When we understand what God has done for us through Christ and who we are in Christ, it transforms everything. It radically changes everything. You might put it like this. If we understand what God has done, it changes what we do. Um, Theologians call it, there's the indicative passages that talk about God's behavior, God's promises, God's achievements, all the things about God. They indicate who God is, what he's like. And then there's the imperative passages that command us how to behave in response to that. 
And you could simplify that down into this very simple formula in your handout by simply saying this, God saved me by giving his son to die for me. As a result, I am a loved, forgiven, reconciled child of God. Therefore, I do love. Therefore, I do forgive. Therefore, I do reconcile. I am, therefore, I do. And when I've worked with people in divorces and church splits and lawsuits or having a hard time obeying God's command to love and forgive, what I almost always find out is where they are weak is they really don't appreciate who they are. They're weak on that I am. I am forgiven. I am loved. I am reconciled. Therefore, they're very weak on loving, forgiving, and reconciling. So if in your life right now, quick little diagnostic thing, if there's someone out there that you're having a hard time forgiving, someone who has hurt you and wronged you, and you just can't quite forgive them, there's a very good chance that you have forgotten how much you've been forgiven. Now, Jesus touches on this in the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18. He talks about a man who was forgiven a debt that was 10,000 talents of gold. That's like Seven billion dollars in today's dollar if you tried to make an equivalent thing. It's it's an unthinkable debt. It's huge. He could never pay it back. And yet when someone sins against him a much smaller wrong, he will not forgive. And Jesus is warning us we can often become like that. Even if we're genuinely born again, even if we are truly regenerate, we can forget for the moment right now what God has done for us. Remember who you are. What's your identity? Peter talks about, pardon me, he talks about us being a chosen people, a a holy nation, a royal priesthood. But for me, I just love the title. I'm a beloved son of God. I'm a beloved son of God. And the reason Paul uses that terminology in this letter is he's, he's creating a familial intimacy. A father-child, father-son, father-daughter intimacy because it should trigger something very special. Think of those beautiful Hallmark commercials where you, you see the little girls dressing up like their mommy. And there's another one where they're going to have a tea party and they act like their mommy having a friend over. Why do little girls dress up like their mommies and imitate their mommies? Because they respect and love and admire their mother. Don't they say that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery? When we respect somebody, we want to imitate them. And little children, before they get arrogant in their teenage years, and they now know everything and mom and dad know nothing, when they're little, mom and dad know everything. And little girls dress up like mommy because they love and admire mommy. There's an old Rockwell, Norman Rockwell picture of a little boy standing in front of a mirror dressed up in his father's World War II uniform. He somehow dug it out of a chest, and the coat goes down to his calves. It's way too big for him, but he's standing in front of the mirror dressed up like his dad. Why? Because he admires his father. He loves his father. He honors his, he wants to be like his father. And that's why Paul uses this language He says, when we understand that we are God's chosen ones, holy love, what do we do? He says, put on. Put on every morning as you're going to work. Tomorrow morning, you're going into that workplace 
whether it's a homeschool classroom or a, a Navy office or something up in D.C. or wherever you go, he says, before you go, put on your clothes. Now, none of us would go to work without putting on our physical clothes. We're sure they're on. But do you put on the garments of Christ? Paul is saying, put on as garments compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another in love, thankfulness. Do you consciously, deliberately put those garments on in the morning, especially when you're anticipating a difficult staff meeting, or especially when your sister-in-law is coming to visit? Whatever the difficult person is in your life, is that a day you consciously dress up a little bit more carefully with the garments and the character of Christ? Saying, I am a child of God. Jesus is my friend. He's my brother. He's my savior. I will dress like him today. I'll put on his character. Please help me, Lord, in this. And we can live out the gospel. We can share the gospel with other people as we live it out. Now, you know, we we need to think of ways to make the gospel practical, relevant, real. Not an abstract seminary type thing not just coming through the Dora conversion, but the gospel is life-changing, life-transforming for today, changing everything in our lives. And let me give you an illustration. Um, my wife homeschooled our two children. Um, I call homeschooling accelerated sanctification for mothers. <laughs> You're with the little sinners 24-7, and it will bring everything out in both mother and children. And there were days I would work at home, and I, I, I could hear the tone of voice in the classroom, even if I couldn't hear the actual words. And one day I could hear the tone of voice down there, and it wasn't good. It was getting more and more heated, and Corlett and Megan and Jeff were having a, an intense conversation. So I knew there was some kind of conflict. So I went downstairs and stood outside the door for a moment and listened and tried to assess, you know, what's going on. And I could tell... It was primarily Megan, my daughter, who was provoking this situation. And by the way, I have her permission to share this story. Um, I couldn't tell it without her permission. And I, I finally walked in. I said, Megan, could I talk to you, please? She was about 12 years old at the time. And I said, could I talk to you, please? And we went into a, a bedroom next to the classroom, a room that our children affectionately called the dungeon. Uh, you can speculate as to why. And we, I went in there, and I sat down on the bed. My daughter came around me, laid down on the floor, their head up against the nightstand, and she crossed her arms like this, and I could see the force field. The, the engineers on the Starship Enterprise would have been envious. This was an impenetrable force field. And she was laying there like this, and I was getting ready to speak, and I suddenly realized... This is pointless. No matter what I say, her heart is hard, her mind is closed. There's nothing I could say that she will listen to. I could pull out the photon torpedoes of honor your father and your mother. I could have the phasers of submit to those in authority, and they would just go boing. So I looked at her, and I thought, Jesus, please, help me. Help me to know how to get through to the heart of this little 12-year-old. And 
the thought that came into my mind was a whole different course of action. And I looked at Megan. I said, Megan, if Jesus was here right now, what do you think he would say to you? Without raising her eyes, she just said, stop controlling your brother. You know, just the perfect sneer in there. She knew the lecture. She knew what the issue was. She knew what I was going to say. I could have said, give yourself the lecture. I'll be back in about an hour. (laughs) She had heard it a hundred times. But it had not changed her heart. The law does not change the heart. And I looked at her. And I said, well, honey, he'd probably get around to that eventually. But before Jesus said that, here's what I think he would probably say to you. I think what he would say to you is, Megan, I love you. I love you more than you can begin to imagine. Before the world began, I looked down through time and I saw you. And I said, you're mine. You're mine. And at just the right time, I brought you into this world I had made, this beautiful, glorious world with clouds and oceans and poppies and mountains, all the things that I knew you would enjoy. And I brought you into this world at just the right time. And I brought you to this family, this mother, this father who adopted you because I knew they would love you just the way I wanted you to be loved. And Megan, I I wanted them to bring you to this particular church where you would hear about me and they would talk about my love for you and tell you how much I care for you. And they tell you what I'm like and who I am. And how you can have relationship with me. And Megan, I, I knew that you were going to struggle with sin. I knew that before I even made you. I knew that even before I loved you. I knew you would struggle with sin. And I knew that that sin was so serious, it would put an eternal wall between us. Where the day would come and we'd be separated forever. And I didn't want that to happen. So 2,000 years ago, I came down, and I was born as a little baby, just like you were. And I grew up with a mommy and daddy and brothers and sisters just like you. And I lived a perfect life. I never talked back to my mommy. I never disrespected my father. I lived a perfect life so I could have a record that was absolutely spotless that I could give to you and say, Megan, this is your record. And when you stand before judgment someday, you can say, this is my record. But there's this problem of your sins also, and, and we had to do something with those. And so I, I took all of your sins, and I put them on my shoulders, and I was nailed to a cross. And I experienced the full judgment of God, the Father, that you deserve. But I took it because I love you, and I paid for those sins, washed them away. And when my father looks at you right now, he sees you as white and pure and spotless because you've got my record. And Megan, I love you so much. I want to keep working in you even now today. I want to keep changing your heart so that rather than controlling your brother and frustrating your parents, you find joy in serving them and loving them and obeying them. You find more happiness in that than you do in defying them. And Megan, I love you so much that someday I'm going to come back and get you. I'm going to sweep you away to heaven and we will be together forever. Now, if you've read the Bible, you realize what I did. I just paraphrased the gospel message from Genesis to Revelation. 
We need to get good at paraphrasing and putting the gospel redemptive message and all its implications into everyday language that our children can understand and our coworkers can understand. Not theological terms, but terms they can understand. And because what it does when you do that, when you bring the gospel, it penetrates hearts. The gospel goes right through force fields. And I saw that that day. I looked down at Megan, and all the while I'm talking, I could see the, the, her body is relaxing. The tension that was there initially, her muscles relaxed. She just, her arms sort of dropped down. I could see the force field, the shimmering sort of went away. And at the end of it, at the end of my little thing of what Jesus would say, I said this. I said, Megan, this is what I want to say to you. Not, this isn't Jesus. This is Daddy. I love you. I love you so much. Even on days when you're difficult, it doesn't change my love for you a bit. It's because God has put his love into my heart for you. And no matter what happens, I will always love you. At that point, my daughter got up off the ground, came up, lay down on the bed, put her head on my lap, and said, Oh, Daddy, please pray for me. Please pray that Jesus would change my heart, that I wouldn't do all these things. You see, the law can restrain sin. The law can punish sin. But the law does not change the heart. The gospel, the love of God, changes the human heart. The gospel is what draws people to Christ. The good news that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son to die for us. So get good at sharing the gospel Let me ask you men, husbands, when's the last time you brought the gospel to your wife? Especially if she's got young children at home. She needs to hear the gospel. Wives, when's the last time you brought your husband the gospel? The good news of God's love for him. A friend of mine was on a cruise, on a big cruise ship down in the Caribbean They had a certain Christian celebrity on board doing all the talking. It was public knowledge. He was going through some difficult things in his life, some hard times that were, some people were very critical of him about. But he still had a lot of credibility. National TV show, many books, huge church, preaching and teaching on this cruise. And my friend was walking on the deck one night, and he ran into this celebrity Christian speaker, And they just began to chat. And as they were chatting, my friend Tom had this strong impression that the Lord was telling him, share the gospel. Share the gospel. And in his mind, Tom was saying, what? He he writes books on the gospel. He preaches the gospel. He's on television with the gospel. Share the gospel. Share the gospel. And so Tom, in obedience to the prompting of the Holy Spirit, finally just said, this is going to sound sort of silly, <laughs> but could I tell you how much God loves you? Could I, could I remind you how much he has done for you? And he just began to share the gospel in a very informal way. And within about two minutes, this Christian celebrity began to sob. And he said, do you realize how long it's been since anyone brought me the gospel? Boy, that's sobering. Bring it to your children. Bring it to your spouse. Bring it to other people. Live it with your coworkers to the point where they would eventually want to hear it. How do we become the kind of people that do this? 
Well, number one, we need to pray that Christ would dwell in our hearts so richly. He would open our minds to understand the immensity, the enormity, the glory, the beauty of the gospel every day. And secondly, we need to meditate on and delight in the gospel, to delight in it every day. You know, if you just bought a brand new car you've wanted for years, or if you just remodeled your kitchen in a way you've always wanted to, whatever your would really thrill you. There's a commercial on TV right now where the mom comes out late at night and turns on the light, just looks at her newly remodeled kitchen, and her little daughter is saying, Mom, I think we need to let the kitchen go to sleep. But, but, but mom is, she's thrilled. She, she gets, I'm sure when she gets up in the morning, first thing she does is come down and just look at this newly, beautifully remodeled kitchen. Is the gospel that beautiful to us? Is it, is it so precious that we just think about it, it preoccupies us. We delight in it. We want to share it. Tim Keller in The Prodigal God says, all change comes from deepening your understanding of the salvation of Christ and living out of the changes that that understanding creates in your heart. Faith in the gospel restructures our motivations, our self-understanding, our identity, our view of the world. Faith in the gospel. This is why Paul prays in Ephesians 3.16, I pray that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's a prayer we should pray for ourselves and our families every day. Otherwise, we'll become like Lewis and Clark. I'm from Montana. Lewis and Clark went through Montana hundred, almost well, 200 years ago, basically. And when they came through and they were coming back from the West Coast, they came over the Rocky Mountains, and when they stood at the base of the Rocky Mountains looking up, they commanded the sky. I mean, they're huge. They tower up over you. They just occupy everything. They, they just, all you can think about is go, wow, man, they're beautiful. But as they completed their journey and got back on their boats and came down the Missouri, the Rocky Mountains became smaller and smaller and smaller in the distance. And eventually they disappeared below the horizon. And that's what happens to many of us with the gospel. When we first hear the good news and put our trust in Jesus Christ, the gospel commands the landscape. We are so thrilled at the thought that God has forgiven our sins and adopted us as his children. We are so thrilled. We're, so, we're like people just went, won the lottery. But as time goes by, we become sort of oblivious. We think less and less about it. We get caught up in the affairs and challenges of life. And the gospel sort of disappears beneath the horizon. So I want to encourage you. Make it one of your goals within your family, within your friends, is to find ways to every day renew your delight in the gospel. Even to think if there's some little sin where you have a moment of bitterness toward a person and you, you, you sense that, you go, Lord, I'm so sorry for being bitter toward that person. And then celebrate for a moment and say, Lord, I realize that that one little sin of being bitter for just a few minutes is so heinous in the eyes of a holy God that if you had not died for that on the cross, Jesus, I would be separated for eternity. God, thank you so much. 
Celebrate his forgiveness even of your teeny little supposedly tiny sins. Celebrate, rejoice, delight in it. When you see yourself doing something that is not characteristic, you're kind to someone you normally wouldn't be. Instead of thinking, wow, I'm a pretty nice person, celebrate God's gifts. Say, God, you're really changing me. Thank you so much. Be in a state of constant worship. And as Paul says, thanksgiving. Be thankful. Continue to fan into flame a love for God. On the back of your handout is sort of a self-evaluation. And I, I encourage you to go home this afternoon and to just privately get along with God for a few minutes and ask him to help you look into your heart. And you can use this to sort of evaluate, am I, am I living a life transformed by the gospel? Or am I living a life that's really sort of pushed the gospel aside, that's this two-door gospel? And you can look at this and you can sort of evaluate yourself. For example, I'll just go through one, a couple of these with you. In daily life, apart from the gospel... I'm preoccupied with my own desires, plans, reputation, safety, convenience. It's all about me. I've got to do this today and go to the store here. I've got this project today. I've got to do this. And, oh, man, it's going to be a busy day. And it's all churning just on the horizontal. But if I'm mindful of the gospel, I'm preoccupied with how I glorify God, how I delight in God, how I worship God, how I please and honor God. John 8, 29, the passage cited there, Jesus says this. He says, the one who sent me is with me. He has never left me alone because I always do what pleases him. And when Jesus says always, he means 24-7. Every moment of his life had one objective. How do I please and honor my father? How do I please and honor? And because that was his constant focus, the father never pulled away from Jesus. There was perfect intimacy every minute of every day. So do you want to have a sense of closeness with God? Ask him every day, Lord, give me an appetite and a desire today to please and honor you. As I drive to work, as I push a cart down the grocery store aisle, I can look at people and say, Lord, I could be pleasing if I just smile to people today. If I go up to the checkout counter and I just engage the, the clerk and just say, so how are you today? How's it going? Love your store. It's so clean, so fresh. Got the best produce of any store in this area. Really like. Is it good working here? What do you like about working here? Just engage that person. And you might find someday she's going to have a troubled look on her face. She's going to see you coming, and she's glad to see that when you get up there, she's going to say, would you please pray for me? My mother went into the hospital last night with cancer, and I'm so scared. Your day-by-day day going to that store and just being kind and gentle and caring to her could build passport, a relationship that someday would be the door you open to share the love of Christ. So make that every day. One more example. <clears throat> Fourth one down. When I really realize a conflict exists, when there's a conflict in my life, apart from the gospel... I will always see the other person as more guilty than me. Even if I acknowledge, well, I'm at least 49% wrong here, God. That means she's at least 51 and she's got a net deficit. So she's the one that should come to me. We, we think that, not consciously, but subconsciously. We wait for other people to come, especially when we think we're more at fault. <clears throat> 
But if I'm living transformed by the gospel, and God's word is richly transforming my mind, and it's his word that does this, then I think of a passage like Romans 5.8 where it says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He was perfectly innocent. We were 100% guilty. And yet, who was the initiator? The holy, righteous one. So we sort of trap ourselves. If we think we're more holy and righteous, guess what? God says, good, then you're the one who should go. If we're living transformed by the gospel, we imitate Jesus Christ by taking the initiative to go and to be reconciled. And I can tell you right now, if there's someone out there that you've got a broken relationship and you are waiting for them to come to you, you have not fully experienced the transforming power of the gospel. You're like someone who has an inheritance you haven't claimed. It's like $10 million that's in the bank waiting for you and you've not gone and claimed it. It is grace upon grace, transforming power to give you a love for that person, a desire to go. Not a reluctant, okay, God, I'll do it. But, oh, Lord, I hope I see her today. Today's the day I want to love her. You'll see at the bottom of that page the summary of this entire message, one simple statement. If you reflect much on the gospel of Jesus Christ, on Jesus and his gospel, reflect much on it, you will reflect much of it. People will look at you, they'll look at your life, and they'll say, you must be one who was with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would come into our lives through the power of your Holy Spirit. You would transform our minds through your word. There'd be no book in this world that is more magnetic to us, more delightful to us than your word, that every day we, we, we feast on it. We come and we sit under teaching each week with our minds open, not preoccupied or distracted. Take advantage of every Sunday school class and every Bible study you bring into our path. And Lord, that you would transform us in such a radical way. The gospel is like the Rocky Mountains in our lives. They're in our backyard. We cannot ignore them. But we stand in awe of them every single morning. Make us like that, Lord, that we go out into this hurting, broken world with the love of Jesus Christ, penetrating those force fields people have put around themselves, breaking through those walls, and helping people to know the love, the transforming power, the saving grace of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.